You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text this morning, and especially in connection with the theme of thanksgiving and thankfulness, we have two readings. Our first reading is from the Old Testament, and it comes from 1 Chronicles 16. So read the verses 8 through 18, and you can see that this is a a psalm of thanks. It was a response from David for the Ark of the Covenant being brought to the temple. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell of all His wonderful acts. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of all who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. Remember the wonders He has done, His miracles and the judgments He pronounced. O descendants of Israel, His servant. O sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word He has commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant He made with Abraham, He swore... The oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan, as the portion you will inherit. We'll now turn to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read the verses 6 through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you are performing is not only supplying the needs of God's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which You have proved yourselves. Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Our text this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, the verses 2 through 5. These four Proverbs resonate with many others in the book, and where they're put here, they seem to form sort of a unit. And so we'll give our attention to them this morning. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in the summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. 
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is Thanksgiving weekend. It's the weekend in which our society celebrates Thanksgiving. What that means to everyone, I'm not entirely sure, but certainly the idea of giving thanks flows from the idea that we have someone to give thanks to. We've received things from someone. As the church of God, we realize, of course, that we are giving thanks to God for all the good things that He has given. And so this idea of giving thanks is a good one to have our attention this morning. It's a good one to ponder. And it's one that we will ponder from the book of Proverbs. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and since we have been looking at some Proverbs from this book, it seemed like a good idea to, to bring the two together. And so I thought, in preparing for this sermon, why don't I start to read through the book of Proverbs and sort of pick out all the Proverbs that talk about thanks and thankfulness. Certainly there must be many of those. So I started reading, and I read, and I kept reading and reading and reading and reading. Couldn't find any. So in these days of modern technology, I turned to my computer and my Bible software and I thought I'd run a search and find all the times that the word thanks or thankfulness or thanksgiving comes up. And so I ran several searches. I looked for the word thank. Nothing. Look for the word thanks. Nothing. Thankfulness. Nothing. Thanksgiving. Not there. Gratitude. Nothing. Even the word turkey wasn't in here. So the question becomes then, what do you do with the book of Proverbs and with thankfulness, thanksgiving? Uh, Do the two have anything to do with each other? Is thanksgiving out for the person who wants to walk in the way of wisdom that's expressed in Proverbs? Well, the thing about the Proverbs is that you read them, and you reread them, and you meditate on them, you chew them. You have to go deeper than just what's on the surface. And I think what we find, what we in fact know, is that Thanksgiving as a theme runs through this whole book. In fact, this book of Proverbs is founded on Thanksgiving itself. The book of Proverbs is all about how to live before the Lord in covenant. The idea that God has called us to be His people, and now how do we walk before Him in relation to Him? And how do we walk before God in relation to Him? Well, we walk in thankfulness. God has given us all that we need. God has given us salvation, and from that flows everything else. And so the only attitude of our hearts can be in response to that, one of thanksgiving and thankfulness. And so thanksgiving and thankfulness is woven in every proverb that's given in this book. And certainly it's present in the ones that have our attention this morning. Thankfulness is the very path that wisdom takes. Proverbs are are written for those living in covenant with God, who have been redeemed and called to a new way of living those who know the grace of God our Savior, those whose hearts and lives are full of thanks and overflow in tangible ways 
expressing thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the way of wisdom. This morning we'll look at the first two Proverbs there in verse 2 and 3 and consider finding the way of wisdom. What are the sort of the parameters of, of thankfulness and wisdom? How do we, how do we think? How do we understand how we are to walk in this way of thankfulness? And then we'll look at 4 and 5 and consider, okay, what exactly do we do as we work out this thankfulness? As we walk on the road of wisdom. So the first proverb there in Proverbs 10, verse 2 in our text this morning says, Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. The first half there is saying there's no value in pursuing things when that pursuit is not holy and righteous in itself. The end does not justify the means. It's a common saying today. The treasure gained through wrong means, the Proverbs are saying, Solomon is saying, is really no treasure at all. It's of no value. But in order to to understand this and actually to believe this, you need to ask the question of, well, what gives value to something? If I was to go and steal a million dollars and no one caught me, no one ever found out, that money was mine, why would that million dollars not be worth a million dollars? How come it would be of no value to me? Who says it's worth nothing? And of course, it can be more subtle than that too, using the ends to justify the means or even giving treasure to something that is not valuable. Who says that I shouldn't use illicit sex to gain a sense of satisfaction and worth for myself? Who says that I shouldn't use anger to gain control over others? That's what I value. Who says I shouldn't manipulate my relationships in order to gain power? Isn't that power worth something? Who says I shouldn't steal in order to gain money? Who says those things are of no value? Who decides? Well, that's the very question that Solomon would have us seek in order to gain the answer. And the answer is, because God says so. Proverbs lays out for us the ways of God's kingdom. God's kingdom, Solomon teaches here, needs to determine what our treasure is. And God's kingdom needs to determine how we seek that treasure. It's God's kingdom that determines that a million dollars stolen is not worth anything. You see, God's kingdom gives us a whole new way of thinking, a whole new paradigm for understanding what is valuable, what is good, and how should we attain that. shouldn't be gained through unlawful or unrighteous means. shouldn't be gained at the expense of anyone else. It should be gained, the proverb teaches here, through righteousness. Not from a heart of, of selfishness. I want power. I want satisfaction. I want wealth. Not a heart of selfishness, but a heart of thankfulness. God has given me so much. God is my God. 
He gives me everything I need every day. I should pursue things out of a heart of thankfulness. Not what can I get for myself, but what has the Lord already given to me? And so God calls us right in this first half of the first proverb this morning to re-examine our values. What is valuable to us? And how do we go about achieving that? What's your treasure? Does the will of God, does the kingdom of God decide for us what is valuable, what is good, and what ought to be pursued, and how we should pursue it? Do the interests of God's kingdom dominate our thoughts, our pursuits, our values, our treasures? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then you will walk in the way of wisdom, the way of thankfulness. In the second half of that verse 2, then Solomon moves the discussion to eternal matters when he says, but righteousness delivers from death. That really is the only possible explanation for this, that, that Solomon is talking about eternal things when he says righteousness delivers from death. You, you might say, well, no, it's not. He could be saying, if you live righteously, then you will avoid death. And sort of something like, in the the normal case, a righteous way of life is the healthiest kind of life, and it will spare a person from harm and death in most cases. Well, there maybe is a kernel of truth there, but experience and really the rest of Proverbs and the rest of God's Word does not bear out that understanding. The righteous suffer. The righteous are persecuted. The righteous fall ill, get sick. And die. So what is Solomon saying here? Well, if we can contrast the two parts of verse 2, then you realize that what Solomon is saying is that wealth is not going to do you anything in the face of death. That certainly is clear from the contrast. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. So treasures, things of value, aren't going to do you any good in the face of death. In fact, Proverbs 11, verse 4 says, wealth is worthless on the day of death. But the reward of the righteous is not in getting stuff in the here and now. It's not really concerned with the here and now so much, but the reward of the righteous is a blessed future that outlasts death. The righteous, Solomon teaches, the righteous, the Word of God teaches, don't have to fear death because they will live forever with God. Because they are in the kingdom of God, and God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so the way of wisdom takes a perspective on things that is long and wide, that is eternal. What should I do now? Well, I should do the very thing that will continue for all eternity. And there's another side to this as well. One explainer has said this, If God rewarded virtue immediately, then the son that Solomon is teaching here would confuse pleasure with piety. Would use piety and ethics, would use doing the right thing in order to satisfy his unwholesome interests. So God takes the connection between acting righteously and getting good things immediately. He separates them. 
And He does that for the sake of the righteous. So that we won't be tempted to do what's right to satisfy our own selfish pleasures. But rather that we will seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Trusting that all that we need will be added unto us later. This can only come from an eternal perspective. If we suppose that God rewards our good deeds in the moment with health or wealth or anything else in the short term, then we're prone to do what's right in order to satisfy our own selfish desires. This is not the way of wisdom. This is not a heart of thankfulness. This is a heart of selfishness. But righteousness is the way of thankfulness. Righteousness is the way of wisdom. Following the ways of God's kingdom. And what is righteousness? But but living by faith in God. By looking to God and seeing, God, You are great. You give me everything that I need. I thank You. Help me to live out of, of thanks and praise for You. Help me to do everything that I do for You. For Your kingdom. As an expression of gratitude. And so we pursue what's good out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. That's the way of wisdom. That's the way of righteousness. And so the first step on this, this, this road of thankfulness, or the first step to understanding it, is, is of emptying yourself of preconceptions about what is important, what is of value. Emptying yourself of the notions that the world gives us of what is valuable, what's good, what should be pursued. And adopting the Lord's standards. What does God's kingdom decide for me? What's of value? The righteous are those who intentionally live by faith in God. And that kind of living gives you profound reason for thanks. We go to verse 3 now. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Verse 2 urged us to find the way of wisdom by getting rid of all the other wisdoms. Not what the other ways are telling us is valuable. What is God's way? When I put God first, what does that mean as I live out my life? Well, verse 3 is more direct and to the point. It urges us to find this way of wisdom by considering who made it. Who laid out this path for us? Who gives us everything that we need? We need to understand who built this road. And so this verse gives us the theological underpinning. It gives us that that sense of God, that understanding of God that provides the foundation for the next two verses. And it does that by invoking the name of the Lord. The Lord. Then our perspective is right. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. The Lord provides. That's how we know which way to walk in. By first understanding that the Lord provides. This is going to have our attention much more this afternoon. The Lord provides. This is what God's people affirm. This is what God's people have always affirmed. It's carried in the Apostles' Creed when we confess our faith in God, the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth, who provides us for everything. It's acknowledged when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Father, 
You're the one who provides. God the Father is the provider. And the righteous are those who trust Him. Who trust that the Lord will meet their needs. That is the beginning of thankfulness. Acknowledging that everything comes from the hand of God. Everything comes from the powerful and loving hand of the Lord. And conversely then, in the second half of verse 3, we see that the cravings of the wicked either aren't satisfying, sorry, aren't satisfied, or aren't satisfying. He thwarts the cravings of the wicked. He doesn't give them what they want. They're never satisfied. They're never satisfying as the wicked pursue them. And notice the contrast here. The pursuit of righteousness isn't mentioned here, but it's clear from elsewhere that the pursuit of the righteous, what the righteous are after, is the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. But the pursuit of the wicked is their own cravings. And so we have this contrast set up. God versus cravings. What Solomon is saying here is that the wicked pursue idols. They reject God. They don't seek after God. They seek after their own cravings. They set up idols from their heart, from their desires. And they find no satisfaction in them. The Lord does not grant them satisfaction. The Lord cannot grant them satisfaction because there is no satisfaction in anyone but Him. And so in order to find this way of wisdom, this way of thankfulness, We need to realize that single-mindedly trusting in God keeps us from idolatry. We must set God first in our hearts. A heart of thankfulness for what God reveals, for what God provides, reveals a heart that desires the one true God. If you want to test whether your desire is on God in His kingdom, then test the level of thankfulness you you feel at any given moment. A heart that is set on God is revealed in a heart that is thankful for all that God gives. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust Him and He will do this. He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. First commit your ways to the Lord. And then the Lord will give you satisfaction. So in order to find the way of wisdom, we need to set the Lord first. We need to have the Lord's ways and the Lord's kingdom determine what is valuable, what is good, and how to walk. And now we'll consider how to walk in that way of wisdom, that way of thankfulness in verse 4. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. It's quite clear here. We're told how to walk in thankfulness. That's through work. The means by which God provides is by work. These two aren't contrasted. We can say at one moment, the Lord provides, the Lord gives all. And in the very next Proverbs, we can say, you need to work. The way that God provides for us is by work. The Lord has given us minds and hands and healthy bodies that we might work. It's consistent with our very creation. The Lord created Adam and Eve, and where did He put them? In a garden. What does a garden require? Work. Requires maintenance. Of course, when Adam and Eve were working in that garden, they were working in harmony with it. 
Their fall into sin added that, that sense of toil, that sense of meaninglessness to their work. But it didn't change the fact that they were created to work, and even after the fall into sin, were called to work. We read about it this morning already in the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. Now, unfortunately, work is not always understood in our times as something that we all are to do, are to pursue, to our the best of our abilities, to our unique situations. Sometimes the, the very idea of work is caricatured as, as kind of a, a conservative social or political value. Conservatives are into work. And the idea you get then is that, well, some people ought to work and some people ought not to work. Or some people think work is important, but it's up to you to decide whether it actually is. But the reality is that work is fundamental to who we are, to who God has created us to be. It's fundamental to life. And especially to living in covenant with God. God requires us to work. God blesses us with work. And God works through our work to provide us with what we need. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now there is a way to misunderstand this, isn't there? That misunderstanding can happen easily. It happens when we, only verses after verse 2, revert back to a sort of a materialistic mindset And we think to ourselves that the lesson must be this. Work hard, get rich. Diligent hands bring wealth. Work hard, get rich. And some would even press this further to say, it's God's will for you to get rich. It's God's will for you to get rich. The logic goes something like this. It's God's will for you to work. It's true. They say God uses work. Diligent hands bring wealth. Therefore, it's God's will for you to get rich. But there are some problems with this interpretation. First of all, it goes directly against Proverbs 28, verse 20. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one who is eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Our desire is not to be for wealth or riches. Our desire is to be faithful to God. And notice that there's even a different set of criteria there. A faithful man will be richly blessed. With what? It doesn't say. It doesn't say these blessings are going to be material blessings. But the one who is eager to get material blessings, eager to get rich, will not go unpunished. Right there, too, you see what we were talking about earlier. The different set of standards. God's kingdom needs to decide what we are after. But second, the very idea of getting rich, the very idea of wealth that we have in our minds today was radically different than what would have been in mind here as Solomon wrote these Proverbs. We think about getting rich as as driving around in a nice fancy car, living in a beautiful home on a large property, having all sorts of time and and leisure and and recreational toys and, and whatever really we want to get. These things are wealth to us. And just as I read down that list... Consider that we have a lot of wealth, don't we? But it's highly unlikely that Solomon is talking about building up a whole, a lot of riches, vast amounts of riches. Of course, Solomon was very rich. Does, does he think that, that his hands have been 
astronomically more diligent than the hands of all those that he, he rules over? Does he suppose that he is so rich because his hands have been working so much harder than everyone else? No, that's inconceivable. And what's even more likely is that Solomon is talking to people who live in an agrarian community. They're, they're, they're farmers. There's a direct connection between how much work you put in and how much you get out, generally, isn't there? If you're working the fields. If you work hard, sowing and reaping, then you will be rewarded for your labor. But you're not going to get rewarded in, in all sorts of great riches, but you're going to have what you need. And you're going to have a little more beside to give to those who are who are needy, who don't have so much. You're going to be able to go beyond perhaps mere survival and be able to enjoy some other blessings from God. Diligent hands, working out of thankfulness to God, produce results. And so built on the foundation of faith in the Lord, the way of thankfulness is hard work. Does that seem at odds? The the way of faith, the way of thankfulness is hard work? Well, it's not. The Lord, in laying down this road of thankfulness, this way of wisdom, intended that we should walk in it. He laid out all these proverbs that we might pursue them. The way of thankfulness is in obedience, in labor, in service. And it's one that produces great joy. Not joy because we get to pursue these things to our own comfort or or for our own wealth or to make ourselves more powerful or important. But the joy comes in service, in pursuing work to the glory of God. That our work has meaning beyond ourselves. It has significance for all eternity, for God's kingdom. Verse 5, He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Now this proverb might seem fairly obvious. You might even wonder, why this is characterized as wisdom. Well, of course, you have to gather the crops when they're ready. And if you sleep through the harvest, you are not wise. In fact, you are disgraceful. The obvious perspective that looks to the end, the one who sleeps through the harvest doesn't get anything. The one who works hard does get something and sees that clearly one is better than the other here. Probably everyone would realize that. But like I said, these proverbs need to be chewed on. We need to think about them. Now consider for many of us who don't work in a seasonal job, who don't have this time of springtime and harvest, what happens when the end result isn't so clear? What happens when there's not a clear time of input and a clear time of output? This proverb is fairly obvious because it's talking about that harvest time. But in a time where perhaps that harvest time is is more than a few weeks, maybe it lasts a few months, maybe years, decades, maybe a whole lifetime, maybe there's no discernible difference between sowing and harvesting in your line of work. How do you know what to do? Where is the wisdom in this? The point of the 
the parable, the obvious point is do what you have to do when you have to do it. But what about when it's not so obvious when you have to do it? It seems like there is a deeper, something deeper about this parable. And I think that we get at it when we understand that Solomon is talking about walking in the way of, of thankfulness. That is that the way of thankfulness determines what you do and how you do it. You see, a wise son gathers the crops in summer. But why does a wise son do that? Couldn't a greedy son do that? Well, the harvest is right there. Better get to work and go get it so I can get rich. What? Why a wise son? Simply because it's the right time? Simply to avoid the disastrous consequences of not doing his work? As in the case of the disgraceful son? Walking in the way of wisdom includes this step, but... I believe it goes deeper. As the sun progresses in wisdom, more and more the insight of verse 3 is going to compel him. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. The understanding that first of all, before the sun does any work, that the Lord is the one who provides. That the Lord gives this harvest. That the Lord has blessed the sowing. And will also bless the reaping. That provides the impetus for the son, the wise son, to go and work. The son realizes that every opportunity is an opportunity from the hand of the Lord. And that the Lord builds in the, the son a desire to work. And even more than work to serve. And even more to serve that to praise and glorify God. The son sees this harvest as an opportunity to express his thankfulness to God to work out his thankfulness. God, look what you've done. You've given me another harvest. How can you sleep in with that kind of attitude? You're going to go out and gather the harvest. Living in the light of God's grace not only keeps you from sleeping through your duties, makes you wonderfully alive to the opportunities to serve and praise that God gives you in this world. If you open your eyes and your mind is tuned to the the Lord's ways in this world, then you not only bring in the harvest, but you do it in thanks for the praise and glory of your Father in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, let us open our eyes and tune our minds and our hearts to the ways of the Lord on this Thanksgiving. Let's give thanks to the God whose ways are good, whose promises endure, whose faithfulness continues, and whose hands are powerful and loving. The God who gives us everything that we need. The God who gave to us His own beloved Son. Let's take stock of the good things that God gives us today. In Jesus Christ, let's look to our Father in faith, Realize that all these things flow from His grace. Let's refocus our perspective upon God and His ways. And then, let the thankfulness abound. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.